Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman and Robin, Aquaman, Black Falcon, Samurai, Apache Chief. Together they form the world's greatest force of good ever assembled, dedicated to truth, peace, and justice for all mankind. These are the Man the of Hey everybody, welcome to episode 128 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this week, I am going to finish up my coverage of the 1980 Super Friends shorts. I am completing what I would call season 5 of Super Friends, with weeks 7 and 8, three episodes each. This is the end of the first of three seasons in this format of three uh, seven-minute stories. So, after this episode, season 5 of Super Friends will be in the books, and I will move on to 1981 immediately. Before I get into that, I have feedback to address. This email is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode 117. Greetings, Mike. And uh, by extension, Andrew Leyland, who joined me on that episode. I am truly enjoying Superman the Movie Month, and this week's episode with guest Andrew Leyland was a lot of fun. I love the obvious affection that you and all your guests have for this movie, even as you note that it's not a perfect movie, but what movie, or anything for that matter, is perfect. Some of that is simply progress in technology and technique, and some of it is changing tastes. But none of that makes a good movie bad or a bad movie good. For example, I happen to believe that Casablanca is the best movie ever made, but many younger people, in particular, find the black and white movies almost unwatchable, and some of the rear projection scenes laughable, missing what I find magical about the movie. More reason to like what you like and focus on the good, I think. I never thought much about it, but having listened to the two of you in this episode, I have to agree that Margot Kidder is probably the most believable Lois Lane, certainly as a working reporter. And she really doesn't get as much credit for her performance as she could. I've always loved Luther's lair in this movie because it's kind of what I want in the bad guy headquarters. These kinds of things don't bear much scrutiny in terms of practicality. Like, how did he get all that stuff down there? But the same was true for the bad guy's headquarters in, say, James Bond movies, or, for that matter, the Batcave in just about any version, comic book, animation, or live action. Willing suspension of disbelief is certainly strong in any movie, where we are asked to believe, and we do, that a man can fly. I loved the interplay between Mike and Andy throughout this episode, and I certainly loved hearing Andy's laugh. Thanks again for this wonderful gift to your listeners. Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. That was the first time I had, and to, to date, the only time so far that I've recorded with Andy, although he and I have, uh, you know, corresponded on Facebook uh, over the past few years, and uh, I had a good time, despite having to... Uh, get up at five in the morning to uh, make up for the time difference, but it was uh, definitely well worth it. Aside from the episode I did, I did with Tom, uh, which was episode 119 that I did with my buddy Tom Benya. The segment I covered with Andy was the only seg- segment that we I only covered with one guest host because, honestly, I couldn't really ask anybody else to get up at 5 a.m. on a Wednesday to record with Andy. That's pretty much that, and uh, Andy was a pretty good sport about having uh, the pretty much the kind of the dull point in the movie. From uh, if there is a dull point in this movie, this is definitely where it's uh, slower. Andy kind of came in right after the helicopter sequence. He got some of the super rescues at the beginning, and then we kind of went all the way through uh, just to the point where he gets the message from Luthor. But it was a good time talking with Andy, and uh, I had a lot, I had a lot of fun, and I hope he did too. But that th- doesn't mean there wasn't some stuff that we could, uh, you know, kind of take the piss out, as uh, the British say. <laughs> one of the things we did was uh, Luther's headquarters. I believe I was the one who made the joke about getting the U-Haul to the uh, to the underground lair. But you know, it is one of those things uh, that you have to suspend disbelief for. But in a movie you've seen a lot, it is fun to just kind of, you know, kind of poke fun at it in a loving sort of way. And uh, Dave has told his story about uh, Casablanca. 
I don't find black and white movies unwatchable. I've watched plenty of stuff in black and white. But I do remember uh, Dave telling the story previously of the two co-workers who couldn't uh, sit through a showing of Casablanca because it was in black and white. And I know quite a, a few people like that. And it's, it's just a shame because you do miss out on some good stuff if you can't deal with the black and white uh, presentation. Now, Dave uh, responded to something that I talked about, agreeing that Margot Kidder is probably the most believable Lois Lane. I believe it was so long ago. Andy and I recorded this last summer, and it was the episode was released as this drops five months ago. I believe I was the one who made the comment that you know I had never run into a reporter that looked in the newspaper industry that looked like Terry Hatcher. Margot Kidder looked more, definitely like somebody that I would uh, run into on the beat. Most of the really uh, the pretty faces are all on TV nowadays. And uh, yeah, I don't really have anything else to add to what Dave wrote in. So I am going to encourage everybody to write, write in yourselves, manofscreen at gmail.com. I want to hear from more of my uh, listeners. I know you guys are out there. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, then I'm going to go right into uh, this week's episodes. Hang around, folks. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You start fleet officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. It's for sure to become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. All right, welcome back, folks. All the episodes in this segment had an original broadcast date of October 25th, 1980. And we're going to start with Termites from Venus. And all of our synopses are brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Superman, Batman, Robin, and Samurai have to stop giant Venusian termites from eating away at the Earth. Once those alien termites reach the asteroid belt, they can eat to their heart's content. Holy space bugs! You don't suppose we'll have to fumigate the whole solar system? <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we got, folks. Giant termites. You know, just think, you know, you own a planet, you're putting it on the market, you know, you want to get a good price on it, you think you got it sold, and you find out it's infested with alien termites. You know, just wreaking havoc with the planetary market just it's dreadful and these things need to be dealt with so according to the episode venus is the most uh, mysterious planet in the universe which i guess is why we're constantly uh, sending probes to mars although i imagine with the venus's surface temperature any machines we were to send there probably would melt or not work or for some reason or another but we're sending probes to mars even though apparently according to this venus is the most mysterious planet in the universe maybe it's the most mysterious planet in the universe because we really can't study it but it does have an erupting volcano and a ball of flame, which heads to Earth. 
So I'm guessing this is how we're going to get our space termite infection. And yeah, here they are, talking termites in Denver. You know that phrase, talking turkey? Now we're talking termites. So I can't wait. And uh, these termites are carving a path of destruction, taking down trees as they go. And the sheriff will call the super friends because we don't bother with the proper authorities in this universe. The phone, All the emergency phone lines go straight to the Hall of Justice. It constantly amazes me how these sheriffs and military men are so calm in the face of the absurd. Here is Denver being eaten by giant alien bugs. And this guy's talking like this is the kind of thing that happens every Saturday morning. Maybe it does in this universe. Something is coming in on the trouble alert. Super friends, this is Sheriff Tompkins of Black Hawk, Colorado. You've got to help us. Our town is being devoured by a horde of alien termites. Holy tree bark, what do we do? Relax, Robin. I'll handle it. But they are very calm in the face of calamity. And he's very rational about his alien termites, which are destroying everything. They even reduce a car to scrap. So they're more than just simple termites, because termites, as far as I know, chew on wood. I don't know necessarily that they'll go after cars and things like that. Thought they liked wood, not so much metal. But anyway, these termites apparently do. So Superman is on the scene, and he does something interesting. He uh, sucks them up into a tanker truck, you know, kind of grabs a hose from the side of it and uh, uses like a giant vacuum cleaner. And while Superman is proud of himself for all the good work he's done, the termites eat their way through the tanker. He, then he tries throwing them into space, and that gets rid of some of them, but apparently they're having babies too, uh, too quickly. You know how Star Trek had the trouble with triples? Apparently the super friends are having the trouble with termites. So, because they're having their babies too quickly, Superman tucks his cape between his legs and he goes back to the Hall of Justice and just kind of lets the termites run roughshod over the world. Way to go, Superman. And uh, the termites are continuing their uh, rampage across the entire planet, eating just about everything in sight. There's whole it's grounds of ground is caving in all over the place. It's, it's pretty much the end of the world as we know it. Maybe the super friends should call on the newest uh, DC Comics superhero. Exterminator Man. Or maybe the Orkin Man. Somebody. But we got we do have Samurai, and uh, he uh, says their m- minds will be their greatest advantage. But so far, brain power hasn't helped uh, solve this problem. Batman's got some bug spray on him, but the termites breathe out some nerve gas after they web up the Super Friends. I failed to mention, but now the Super Friends are on the scene somewhere, fighting the termites. And the Super Friends are proving to be quite ineffectual, and still have not called Exterminator Man. So, right now, I am guessing Samurai is going to meditate himself out of the webbing. Or just yell in Japanese to become a tornado, which and freeze him with his light katana. Not to be confused with a, light, with a lightsaber. Now, Superman is not having a very good showing in this episode. First, he can't beat the termites, then he nearly brings a cave down with his heat vision. And if you ever wanted to watch your favorite superheroes run from bugs, this is the episode for you. So now we get uh, more heat vision from Superman. This time, he does collapse the cave, but he does delay the termites for a few seconds. So Samurai is the only one using his uh, cranial matter, and... Uh, he spots some water and realizes that they're uh, near uh, the seawall. That'll only hold him for a few seconds. We've got to find a way out. We still may have a chance. This cave is damp. We must be near the seawall. We have got to cut through. But that'll bring in the ocean. We'll drown for sure. It's either that or face the termites. Robin objects. He doesn't want to drown, but you know what? No one wants to deal with the giant bugs either. But this, uh, so they drill a hole, and uh, this also has the added bonus of not only flushing, uh, the Super Friends out of the cave, but also kind of flushes out the termites, and uh, Samurai will spin like a tornado and send them off into the asteroid belt, I guess, where they can have all of the rocky snacks they could ever ask for. 
For those of you who are not familiar with the asteroid belt in our solar system, it is located between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, between the last terrestrial planet and the first gas giant. So they're gone, and Robin wonders if they're going to have to fumigate the solar system, and everyone laughs as the bugs leave. This was pretty much a monster episode, not a very good one. I don't want to really see my heroes uh, fighting giant bugs that they should be able to handle easily. There was nothing easy about this, which is okay, you don't want everything to be too easy all the time, but termites, really? Feels like we're scraping the bottom of the story well, and we're only in season 5. There are 9 seasons of Super Friends, but at least season 8 will give us something to look forward to. So, that's all for that one. Move right on to Eruption, and our Superman homepage.com synopsis is as follows. The Wonder Twins are the first to act when an erupting volcano threatens a remote village. The twins call in Batman and Robin when they discover the job is too big. That was real cool thinking, Zan. You not only saved us, you saved the town as well. It was nothing, Batman. Just my usual Exorian brilliance combined with my keen sense of timing, not to mention my... Turn him off, Gleek. He's running off at the mouth again. Fearlessness and ability to handle even the most dangerous situations. A lot of people have felt in the past that I should really be promoted. <laughs> and now we'll move on to the next... Oh, no, we probably shouldn't, huh? Oh, so we got the uh, the twins are gliding off, hang gliding off of Mount Metropolis, and Jaina is going to show off by turning into a pterodactyl. But at least Gleek is smart enough to wear a helmet while flying. Probably the smartest thing Gleek has ever done. Meanwhile, this guy, Daryl, he's going to show how big a man he is by hang gliding off, cl- off the cliff when the sign explicitly says not to, you know, because of extreme wind currents. And what do you know? It's out of control, and he's going into a volcano. Good. Serves him right. So Zan becomes an ice jet and takes them into the volcano where Jaina sweeps in and rescues the Idiot and His Girlfriend, which has got to be some kind of country song. The Idiot and His Girlfriend. If not, someone should write one. So, the twins choose, selected them at the heart of a dormant volcano. Thanks, Wonder Twins. You saved our lives. That was a pretty reckless stunt you pulled. Yeah. Lucky for you, this is a dormant volcano. Uh Uh-oh. I think you spoke too soon. Starting to erupt. You can do this lecture anywhere. You do not have to do it in the heart of what you think is a dormant volcano, because the volcano is not always going to remain dormant, as it doesn't here. I mean, as soon as Jaina says the tornado was dormant, boom, there comes the here comes the eruption. So now Daryl is hanging onto a ledge, and Gleek is using his tail to pull him up, because there have been some tremors, and it's kind of destabilizing the uh, rock formation that the twins were standing on, along with Daryl and Tina, I think her name was. So now Zan is going to become an ice bridge. Too bad he can't become something a little bit less slippery, as he can only... Uh, become water products, so he has to become an ice bridge. And they all ran across this ice bridge uh, rather easily. Maybe he's had a special variety of ice that's not slippery. I don't know. But he does have enough time to joke about uh, charging tolls later. Good. Even in the face of danger, Zan continues to make bad jokes. And they jump off of the volcano. It is amazing that none of them died from a fall that high. I don't actually know how high the fall was, but it seemed high enough that uh, they should have been able to land uh, safely. But I'm sure being splattered all over the... uh, the ground probably wouldn't have done much for to show the child friendliness. So Mount Metropolis is erupting, but Batman is on his way. Okay, sounds good. Volcanic eruptions are usually Superman's thing, especially when uh, the mountain uh, is named uh, Mount Metropolis. But I guess we'll let Batman have his fun. Oh, and uh, just uh, for the record, even though this volcano was called Mount Metropolis, the episode is not clear whether or not this episode is anywhere near the city of Metropolis. You would think the name of it would imply that it is, but it does not seem to be so, as the town they're talking about at the base of the mountain is a pretty small one. Now the lava has cut off a family, and we're going to have another Wonder Twins power activation. Third one so far, and uh, they become a gorilla on ice stilts. But Zan starts to melt, and they're, and they're useless. Just once, I want someone to say, 
the Wonder Twins are in trouble, and someone else say, good. So, Batman uses the cable to lift the truck out of the lava, while Leek is trying to plug a dam with his fingers. Literally, he's sticking his fingers in the hole as the water is popping out. It's supposed to be funny, but it's just more dumb than anything else. Especially since I don't think the dam is going to hold that way. Leek might think so. I don't. So now the Batmobile is submerged in the lava, and we have a fourth powers activation. This is a seven-minute episode, and the Wonder Twins have activated their powers four times. Think of it this way. You're watching an old Filmation He-Man cartoon, and for some reason the story is seven minutes long. Imagine hearing By the Power of Grayskull four times in seven minutes. That could be a bad example. Some of you might like that. So anyway, Zan becomes an ice faucet, and he hardens the lava, freeing Batman and Robin, and the town too, by the way. It was just kind of an afterthought in the uh, in the episode. And that's where the episode ends with Zan talking about how great he is, while Gleek is desperately trying to turn the faucet off to carry him at Jaina's insistence. This episode went pretty quick. It was basic. I would prefer to see Superman handle a disaster like this, but it wasn't as bad as previous episodes that handle the Wonder Twins usually are. Although it was uh, pretty annoying. So that's pretty much all I got on that episode. Let's move on now to Return of Atlantis and our synopsis. Rima, the Jungle Woman, and Wonder Woman try stopping female Atlantean warriors from taking over the surface world. Any moment and we will have conquered our first country. I wouldn't bet on it. Who are you? And what do you want here? I am Osina, Queen of Atlantis. Soon to be Queen of the World. You'll have to deal with the Super Friends first. Why do you resist? Don't you understand? I offer you asylum from the men who sank Atlantis and took our world. Those men are of some distant past. The world is different now, as you shall see. If you're not on the side of Atlantis, then you too shall perish! Wonder Woman calls for help from the Amazon army from Paradise Island. Superman's going to meet me in the Atlantic. We'll see that Atlantis has returned safely. Thanks for your help, Apollyta. We couldn't have handled those Atlantean warriors without you. We're always ready to help the fight for justice. For we of Paradise Island are all Wonder Women. Alright, so, Atlanteans and Amazons. And Aquaman is here, too. He's kind of required to have a round in an episode that deals with Atlantis. But it's not Aquaman's Atlantis. We've seen Atlantis several times over the course of the Super Friends, and it seems to uh, look different every time. So, here we have some sailors going to Boston when they find some smoking reefs, which is apparently an island rising from below the ocean and cripples the boat as Aquaman kind of shows up to save the day. He summons some manta rays to seal up the ship's hull, and that give Aquaman an opportunity to kind of push it free of the rising island. This rising island kind of reminded me of the uh, island that Lex Luthor rose up in uh, Superman Returns, which uh, I'm sure I'll cover one of these years. 2006 is still 26 years away. A lot of content here and then. So with this giant island rising out of the ocean, Aquaman wants to go to the Hall of Justice. But he recognizes the city of Atlantis, and he, as he is admiring what he has seen under, under the dome, he's netted by some Atlanteans. And he's captured, and the island is literally moving as if it's a boat. So, here we go. Here is Wonder Woman and Rima, the jungle girl. We haven't seen her since sometime, I believe it was the all-new Super Friends Hour. Wonder Woman gets a call from the authorities, who report a moving, uncharted island. I hate when that happens. When those islands are just moving on, under their own power, something is wrong, and you know you got to find out what it is. You can't just let that island roam around to wherever it wants to go. U.S. Coast Guard calling Super Friends. Over. This is Wonder Woman. Go ahead. An uncharted island has been spotted off the coast of Maryland. I don't exactly know how to say this, Wonder Woman, but it's moving towards shore. We'll check it out. Thanks. Hang on. 
Apparently, these Atlanteans know their stuff as they sail to Washington where they run afoul of the military, who proved to be no match for them. Now, so it's clear that due to cartoon standards, the Atlanteans can't kill the military officers as their weapons merely destroy tanks and nothing else. It's kind of interesting. Um, you'll see an Atlantean fire a trident at a tank or something, and the tank disappears and you just see, kind of see the soldiers standing there. So nobody dies, they're just rid of their toys. So Rima demands to know who they are. She's Osina, and she's going to be queen of the world. It's good to have goals. So she's offering asylum to Wonder Woman and Rima, and I'm just noticing that this Atlantean army appears to be all women. Now, this would probably be a pretty good 22-minute episode, but it's going to have to be wrapped up in seven minutes, so nothing can really be done here other, other than the Super Friends winning quickly. So Wonder Woman is now sending thought waves to Paradise Island. She's not calling the Super Friends for help. Nope. This is woman's work. And Wonder Woman sends for her mother, and they have an invisible sky chariot to go with Wonder Woman's invisible jet. So now we've got a battle between the Atlanteans and Wonder Woman and Rima, along with the Amazons. Rima just kind of doing some massive swinging and uh, kicking uh, some butt all around. But it ends with Osina getting roped up by Wonder Woman. You know, I constantly talk about those fine roping skills that Wonder Woman has. They're on display front and center here. She seems to be more of a one-trick pony than anything else. You also see her in this episode blocking some gun blast with her bracelet. So the bracelet and the lasso, the two main uh, weapons of choice for Wonder Woman in the Super Friends cartoon. No sword here. So like I said, Osina is roped up by Wonder Woman and uh, some of the Amazons as well. So she's not getting away. And with the help of the Amazons, the battle is won. Washington, D.C. is saved. Jimmy Carter can enter his last year as president. And then Aquaman pays some lip service to Superman and says he's rounding up the Atlanteans. So there's that. Superman's uh, not just uh, at home polishing his boots. So like I said, this episode could have been uh, longer. Maybe it could have filled out two or three of this week's segments. As I felt it needed to be fleshed out a little bit more. Some kind of attack like this, there's no way all the Super Friends characters would just kind of sit out. Although the episode was short, it was pretty good. So, time to take another break, play another promo, and then I'll come back to finish up Season 5 of Super Friends. Hang around, folks. Love him or hate him, everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Men when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Oh, wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne, oh, he he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Byrne, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes. I got a question though. I just am curious. Why doesn't Green Lantern have any junk?
All right, welcome back, folks. All the episodes in this segment had an original broadcast date of November 1st, 1980. And we're going to start off with The Killer Machines. And all of our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. When the world's first self-thinking computer tries to take over, Batman, Robin, and Black Vulcan have their work cut out trying to reach it. After computer troubles at the Hall of Justice and in the Batmobile, they make it to the IBN building and erase the computer's memory. I told you you were wasting your time trying to stop me. My calculations are 100% correct. I will reduce you all to a mere memory on my computer tape. Memory tape. That's it. The Bat Magnet will stop him. My mind is erasing. Shutting it down for good. Good thinking, Batman. With all his intelligence, Romac never realized that a simple magnet could erase his memory tapes. It just goes to show you, the human mind is still the best computer around. So, self-thinking computers. Skynet. Why is it every AI story involves the AI trying to kill us? Have you noticed this? Maybe our science fiction writers know something that the rest of us don't know or don't want to know. If machines ever get ever achieve sentience, they're going to want to take us out, I think. So maybe artificial intelligence isn't all it's cracked up to be. Maybe a lot of these science fiction stories where things should be treated more like cautionary tales than mere entertainment. And this, and this could be another one. But we start out at IBN computers. I, IBN as in Isaac, Barbara, Nancy. It's definitely a take on IBM, the uh, real world computer company, which I don't know exactly what IBM does these days, if IBM is still doing anything. But they were pretty, I remember they were a pretty big deal back uh, when computers were becoming more prevalent in the home. And these two scientists have completed the self-thinking machine that has taken the liberty to reprogram itself. That's the danger of creating a self-thinking machine. You don't necessarily want it to think too much and change its programming. Because now it's doing something you don't want it to do, and because it thinks on its own, it's going to plot and make decisions, and this is just bad news for all involved. Let's just say that. And they can't turn it off. And this robot, I believe it's called Romac, he's attacking the scientists. In this particular episode, a man cannot simply turn him off. Send me an email, manascreen at gmail.com, if you know what that's a reference to. I know some of you do. So uh, the uh, robot turns uh, the Hall of Justice computer against Super Friends, and they're going to have uh, quite the task before them to uh, face this creature. The machine has trapped the Super Friends in a cell, and they're, uh, they're being fired out with the Justice League Disintegrator Ray. It is a major concern to me that the Justice League has a disintegrator ray. Why do they have a disintegrator ray? I'm not going to get an answer to this, but obviously they do have one. What are these people disintegrating? But of course, Batman has a bat cape reflector, and that helps them uh, divert the disintegrator ray to create a hole beneath them, and they fall through it, and that's how they get away, through the uh, through the sewers. Apparently, the robot's range is unlimited as he takes control of the Batmobile, and Batman and Robin are out of control, and they go off the drawbridge. Black Vulcan saves them on the way down, but the Batmobile sinks, uh, presumably to never be heard from again. But I'm sure a Batmobile of the same design will appear as soon as possible. And uh, the Super Friends can't hide from anything. This next sequence is very uh, reminiscent of Terminator 3, as uh, Romac takes control of police cars and emergency vehicles and anything he can do to track down Batman and Robin and Black Vulcan. So Batman pulls a bazooka out of his costume. And this thing is huge. Batman pretty much wears a skin-tight costume. Where in the hell was he hiding a bat bazooka? Is this like those things about not analyzing where the villain's headquarters is too much? Because I don't know where Batman pulled that bat bazooka out of. 
Seems a little bit heavy for his utility belt. But either way, Batman and Robin are nearly netted, and uh, now this bulldozer that Romac is controlling misses them, and that kind of just goes over the pier, and that's the end of that. So now Romac is controlling all the military infrastructure, and uh, here we go again. Robin gets tied up in a phone wire, and Batman's plan is to disconnect the robot. So this entire segment is the Super Friends trying to defeat the robot, and he gets the best of them rather easily. Too bad there are no other members to come and rescue them. But like all great villains, Romag accidentally gives Batman the idea on how to defeat him. He hears the word memory tape, and he realizes that he can erase the robot's memory with a magnet, which has a basis in reality. If you uh, run a magnet on, uh, I believe it was on a floppy disk, or maybe even the inside of a VHS tape, or maybe even a DVD, I don't know, you can erase the content. I'm not sure if you can reuse it after this, but... It is possible to erase content with a magnet. So Batman throws a magnet at Romac, and what's strange is he seems to be aware that he's losing his memory. As he says, my memory is losing. Uh. But apparently there's nothing he can do about it. He just slowly shuts down, and everything he's done to the Super Friends is undone. I wonder if that means uh, the Batmobile is going to fish itself out of the water. We don't get an answer to that. But we do end with Batman pointing out Romac's flaw. And Black Lightning will wax poetic for a moment about the power of the human mind and how it's the best computer there is. Despite that, it still keeps trying to create better ones. So that takes care of that. Now we're going to move on to Garden of Doom. One of the twins respond to two scientists being attacked by a man-eating tomato plant accidentally created by a radiation ray. This radiation ray may be the answer to the world's food shortage, Judy. With this machine, I can create giant versions of any plant or vegetable. We're ready for the first test, Professor Grimes. Switching on. Oh no! It's grown out of control! The scientist using the ray accidentally shrinks the twins when shrinking the defeated plant. And when I tried to stop the mutated plant, the Wonder Twins were accidentally shrunk by the radiation ray. The only way I'll have a chance to find them is if you shrink me. But the device isn't fully tested. You could remain tiny forever. That's a chance I'll just have to take. Wonder Woman must be shrunken too to save the tiny twins from the hazards of the scientists' greenhouse plants. We've made it! After all that excitement, you two must be starving. What do you say we go out and have a nice vegetarian dinner? Yeah. Oh no! Blake's messing with the radiation ray! I didn't mention in the last uh, little portion, but I did enjoy the uh, the robot story, but I'm not going to enjoy this one as much. It's for several reasons. One, this is dumb. Secondly, I feel like we've done this before. Another uh, honey, the sh- honey I Shrunk the Kids type of story, and uh, I believe we've seen the Super Friends Shrunk rather recently. So you can see that in Season 5, they needed to come up with all these stories. They're kind of reusing ideas. We've previously seen them reuse the uh, Mixius Pitalik, uh Super Friends in a story idea, and now they're going back to this well again. So, we're at Metropolis College, and apparently Zan and Jane are taking art class in their uniforms, and uh, they can't paint for crap. But apparently Gleek is an everyday Leonardo the Monkey. So, a radiation gun is being used uh, to duplicate plants to solve the world's food shortage. Maybe there was a shortage then. There isn't now, as far as I know, but instead of uh, duplicating food, they create a giant man-eating plant. It sounds like somebody's calculations were a little bit off. There's... A far cry from a really big tomato 
to one that wants to eat you. So Zan and Jaina are now going to become a bunny rabbit and ice shears, and uh, Gleek tries to shoot the uh, plant with some weed killer, I guess it is. So the uh, scientists that have created the problem have decided to help by reversing the ray, and now the Wonder Twins have been shrunk down, and they're now in the little, uh, I don't want to call it a flower pot, but it's, they're in among the plants, basically. So now the Wonder Twins, they're shrunk back down, and like I said, we've seen this before. They're there facing ants, and they're hiding in the asparagus, and I don't like to go near asparagus. I work part-time at a supermarket in the produce department. Even there, I don't want to go near the asparagus. I do not like asparagus, and I don't want to see it on my TV. But there's something else hiding in the asparagus. It's some kind of bug. And for those of you who think bugs have not been all over your fresh and organic produce, think again. So Wonder Woman shows up at the college, and uh, she asks to be uh, shrunk to save the Wonder Twins. This kind of reminds me of a previous episode like this, again, where I believe it was also then Wonder Woman 2 uh, shrinking when she didn't have to. Or maybe it was Superman, I don't remember. But someone shrank and didn't have to. And why does she need to shrink here? Why can't she just look at the uh, the flower bed or whatever it is uh, with um, with a magnifying glass? Maybe then they'll be able to see the twins. Check the asparagus. So Wonder Woman gets shrunk, and uh, she's uh, swinging through the uh, the shrunken guards, and then she's grabbed by this insect here. I think it might be a grasshopper. And now the twins are stuck on the anthill. They're kind of tied up to some kind of leaf, it looks like. I'm not necessarily sure the ants do this for their food, but these ants are. And apparently, ants can conduct exor powers, as it's hilarious watching the twins put their fists on an ant head and change. And that's how they escape. They escape the anthill, only to be captured by the ant queen. And then here is Wonder Woman, turning this into a flying ant rodeo. And my first question is, do queen ants even fly? Maybe they do, I don't know. But this one does, and they get back to where they need to go, They and they return to normal size. Some of these episodes end far too quickly. As for our ending, Wonder Woman suggests a vegetarian dinner. And after all this, I can't say I blame the twins for turning their noses up at that. After all this, I would. And uh, Gleek won't, and uh, he's going to try to enlarge a banana. But I guess he didn't realize what happened to the tomato plants, and uh, the banana grows a face and yells at him and scares the crap out of him. Serves him right. So another uh, not-so-great episode. I mean, I'm... I don't like the fact that we're getting to reusing concepts that we've used before, but it is what it is. Uh, story quality is definitely taking a dip with these uh, seven-minute segments. I'd much rather see uh, the entire team over the course of 22 minutes, but we're not going to get that anytime soon. That's still two seasons away. Now we're going to finish this off with Revenge of Bizarro, which is promising for the fans of Superman. And your supermanhomepage.com synopsis is as follows. Bizarro goes to Earth and uses a special ray to change the dynamic duo, Wonder Woman, Hawkman, and Hawkgirl into Bizarro's. Be tired of Superman always fighting for truth, justice, and American way. We get revenge on our super friends. Turn them all into Bizarro's like me. This Bizarro ray all me need. Superman turns into a four-armed, four-legged individual after being exposed to red kryptonite. He then goes to his fortress of solitude, changes his friends back to normal with a counterbeat, and defeats Bizarro with blue kryptonite. We'll take Bizarro back to his square planet. Holy mutation, Superman! What about your extra arms and legs? Don't worry, Robin. The effects of the red kryptonite should wear off in a few hours. But in the meantime, I think I'll put them to good use. So, we start with the Square Planet, and I love seeing the Square Planet, one of the staples of the Silver Age. 
and the buildings are dilapidated. The American flag is backward, discolored, and all warped. That's right, we're on Bizarro World, the home of Superman's imperfect duplicate. And it's apparent there are several Bizarros and several Superman Bizarros. Now, Bizarro is apparently tired of Superman fighting for truth, justice, and the American way, and he's going to take a Bizarro ray that he has, and he's going to uh, convert them. I don't know how he got a hold of a Bizarro ray, but he has one. Now, as far as the animation goes, I like my Bizarro a little more pale. This Bizarro... You know, while he has the uh, angular-looking uh, skin and face, I wish his skin tone was a little uh, more of a true white or gray or a very light gray, the kind of uh, almost like a light marble color, just to look more like uh, the Bizarro that we're used to. So Batman and Robin, meanwhile, are tracking a crook with that has at least super strength, and we find out it's Bizarro, and it's an accurate-looking Bizarro. The costume has the backward S. I've tried to draw the S symbol. It's hard enough to draw forward sometimes. I, I couldn't imagine having to draw it backwards. And he's also not as dim as regular Bizarro, and he gets the drop on Batman and Robin. And he shoots them with the ray and turns them into Bizarros. Now, Wonder Woman is trying to save a crashing plane when Bizarro shows up. Bizarro's action made her fall off the plane's wing, and apparently uh, the Bizarro ray can go through the invisible jet and convert Wonder Woman as well. So now Superman is at the hall with Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Superman is concerned about Batman and Robin, who show up as Bizarros at the Hall of Justice. And we get a fight, as Batman and Robin and Wonder Woman are having some trouble with the, with the three super friends. Even though their physical gifts are somewhat comparable, the, the super friends are a lot smarter and are able to defeat the Bizarros uh, that way. Now, I do like how Hawkgirl hangs Wonder Woman on the ceiling, but after they're defeated, Bizarro shows up and Superman shows up quickly and destroys the Bizarro Ray. I did wonder at first whether they would have needed that to bring the rest of them back to normal, but I guess we're going to find another way now. Now, Bizarro is going to pull out some red kryptonite, which affects Superman in unpredictable ways. Of course, Superman points that out. The uh, red kryptonite will affect Superman in an unpredictable way, and according to Silver and Bronze Age rules, that same chunk of kryptonite will constantly affect him in the same way, although he doesn't know what the first effect by a kryptonite will be. And basically, this one turns Superman into an octopus. Grows two more legs and two more arms, so he's an eight-limbed Superman. So Superman flies to the fortress, and everybody follows. Now, it is kind of amusing seeing uh, Superman's extra hands have minds of their own and kind of prevent him from opening the vault to get the kryptonite and the weapon that he needs. Fortunately, Superman has an anti-bizarro ray at the fortress because it's only a seven-minute episode and we need to wrap this up quickly, so of course somebody would have all the necessary tools. Fortunately, some blue kryptonite kind of just falls into Superman's arms by accident, and he uses it to make Bizarro capitulate and go home. So the Hawks uh, take Bizarro home, and Superman still needs his extra legs to go away, but it's only a matter of time before the Red Kryptonite wears off. Back in the episode with the Phantom Zone villains, Superman used Blue Kryptonite to counter the effects of whatever was aging him. May have been Red Kryptonite, I'm not sure, without looking back to check. But I thought maybe the Blue Kryptonite, because it has a negative effect on Bizarro, would have a positive effect on Superman. That's the logic that was used in the uh, Phantom Zone episode. I don't remember, but it's disappointing that the plot point of the Blue Kryptonite helping Superman is not revisited here, So, but I'm not really expecting a story of this ilk to pay much attention to its own continuity. Just saying. But now Superman will finally put his extra limbs to good use, and it's still a weird-looking uh, drawing, especially seeing Superman with two extra legs. He fixes the fortress wall, and the episode and season ends. That was probably the best episode I covered this week. More Superman than the other two, and it wasn't a bad episode to end Season 5 on, and yes, we are at the end of Season 5. Next time, we're going to take a week off, and I'm going to head back to live action for a few weeks with the first of two episodes dedicated to Superman 2. 
The first episode is going to be the original theatrical cut, what we call now the Lester cut. I hate that term, but it is the original theatrical cut. For the first week, I'll be covering Superman 2. Let's just say that. I'll cover the main theatrical cut, and maybe I'll take a look at the uh, international version, too, just to see the as much of the TV version as I can. As of this recording, I don't have any guests uh, planned out. I am hoping to bring in some guests. Probably by the time this episode drops, those episodes will have been recorded, but as of this recording date, they have not been. So, until then, you can send me some feedback, manascreen at gmail.com. You can join the conversation over the Facebook group, put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed, and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. So, until next time, folks, we're all, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.